Good morning, church. Hope you're having a great service experience so far. What a joy it is for the church to come together, for the church together. And I just want to take a moment to just give a massive appreciation to our team here that's done a fantastic job. This season's probably taken a bit longer than we would have all liked. But, you know, I was actually thinking about this morning for those of you that are just joining in or just joining in and downpour and what we're about. We're in the middle of a building project. We're actually here on site. Uh, but, but for some of us, maybe we were hoping that we would be in this building in a month's time and two months' time. But, you know, I was actually thinking about cathedrals. Cathedrals took 150 to 200 years to build. Uh, the first generation stepped out in faith and the second generation got the land and the third generation got the contracts in and the fourth generation actually got to have their first service before they went on to be with Jesus, literally. Uh, and so obviously we've had a few delays here and there, but you know what? Uh, the, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And the reality is Sunday nights, we're still gathering here. Uh, you know, or with, within the restrictions that we have, but we're still gathering. And so I want to encourage you to be a part of tonight. Last week, uh, it was absolutely powerful. We put on a barbecue uh, and the church doubled in Jesus' name. Uh, and so, so this week there is no barbecue, uh, but the Word of God is here. The presence of God is going to be there. And uh, I just want to encourage us, if you've got no plans, uh, be a part of tonight. I believe it's going to be absolutely fantastic. We're living in significant times, aren't we? You know, we look at the, when you look at the news, when you, look at, you don't have to look at the news, you can jump on social media and see significant things that are happening. And I want to I dedicate the next couple of weeks, there'll be a few things that you'll be hearing because people have been asking, what's your heart? What's God saying? I don't, I don't think Sunday morning is necessarily the setting for some of those things, but there's going to be conversations that potentially would rise up. And more than conversations, it's not really what I think, it's really the church praying. And so there's going to be uh, some opportunities for us to be praying over the next couple of weeks, which we'll share about in the days to come. Well, I want to continue uh, on this message series or this message theme that I've been sharing over the last couple of weeks. Uh, out of this incredible encounter I had, one of the things I, I understood or I sort of gained uh, was four things that keeps the church away from fulfilling her assignment. Uh, four things that stop the church. And over the last couple of weeks, we looked at grief as one of, uh, one of them. The second was selfishness. So can I encourage you to re-listen to some of these messages? Because I think it's pretty powerful. I was listening to, my, uh, to, to, to it myself the other day. And when I listen to it, I don't listen to it as evaluating my preaching or where I can improve. But really, there was some, there was some content in there that I believe is going to speak powerfully. Well, this morning, I'm going to deal with the fourth uh, sorry, the third thing that stops the church or takes the church away from her assignment. And the, four, uh, the third thing is unbelief. Unbelief. Now, the, moments I, the moment I say the word unbelief, uh, you know, we, we already have a category for it. We already have a thinking about it. Uh, you know, most of us have this thinking of that's a good message for an unbeliever. Uh, that's, a, that's a good message for people that don't believe in Jesus. Uh, but but you've got to understand that they, there are many unbelieving believers. Believe me when I say this, there are many unbelieving believers. Uh, and so I want to just speak about that. The other thing also, when you hear this message, we think it's not a big deal. You know, uh, sometimes I'm believing, sometimes I'm doubtful. But actually this whole idea of unbelief, as I was amongst the, th amongst the four things that I understood, I sort of put it as a, 
lower category. But as I began to unravel God's word, I actually saw how significant it is in the eyes of God, how much it actually matters to God. And I'm going to share some things towards the end of my message that's probably going to be revolutionary. Some of you might think it's theologically wrong, but it's actually perfect uh, as we understand from Scripture. So I've got some thoughts around this, and I've got points around this. My first point is unbelief negates God's promises. Unbelief negates God's promises. The word negate means to make ineffective or to invalidate. To invalidate. Unbelief invalidates God's promises. And this is, a, this is a pretty radical statement to say because God, who is almighty, who is all-powerful, uh, who is supreme, who is the creator of the heavens and the earth, that, that my unbelief can have an effect on, on, on God's promises. And I want to share a story which is sort of going to be the underlying uh, theme of this message. And the story is, is in the book of Exodus where Moses, God raises, a, raises up a man called Moses who delivers Israel from, from captivity. They were under captivity for 400 years, delivers them, and, and, and he was delivering them not to just spend days and decades in the desert or in the wilderness, but there was a destination. And the destination, as the Bible calls it, was the promised land. I love that they use the word promised land because we have a God who has promises and we have a God who fulfills promises. And, and, and they gave this title to it called the promised land. So some of you, you got to understand uh, that, that God has promises for you. God has plans and purpose for, for you. Book of Jeremiah says, the plans that I have are plans to prosper you uh, and not to cause harm. And so we are all on a journey towards the promises. And obviously, our final destination, our final promised land is heaven. Uh, uh, but, but even here on earth, there are elements and facets of heaven. There are elements and facets of the promise that God has put before us. But we, we have a moment in the book of Numbers where Moses is well and truly recovered and regained and delivered the children of Israel into the promised land, I mean, into, in, out, of, out, of, out of Egypt. And there's a moment where God says to, to Moses, I'm about to give the land that's before you. Literally, this is your land. Not the wilderness, not living in scorching heat, but this land that is fertile, the land that is flowing with milk and honey. And Moses does this thing out of, in, out of, out of, uh, uh, out of initiation from God. Moses does this thing called due diligence. And the due diligence was, boys... God's called us to take that land. God's promised that land to us. In fact, the language of God was, I've given you the land. God's given us the land. Why don't you just go on a little spying trip? Just to sort of whet our appetite. You guys are going to be the brand ambassadors of the promise. That was the assignment. So, so to make this happen, Moses goes, into the, Moses goes and picks 12 men from the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel was divided into 12 groups. Uh, out of the 12 sons that Jacob had. And, and he chose 12 men just so that there's even distribution and everyone feels represented. And, and so Moses sends them. In fact, Numbers chapter 13, verse 17, this is what it says. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains. Now, I want you to notice the instructions that Moses gave and see what the land is like. Whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, 
whether there are forests there or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. And verse 26, it says, Then they departed and came back. I want to read the rest of it. Then they departed and came back. Now what is interesting to me is, is that Moses sends them with a ton of instructions, and the instructions are that I want you to examine the land. I want you to look if it's mountainous. I want you to look how the city has been constructed. I want you to look what the roads are like. I want you to look what the highways are like. I want you to look if there are rivers. I want you to look what's around them. And, 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 and that, is, that is the instruction, right? Just one of the instructions amongst all the other instructions was check out what the people are like. Now, these guys come back, and let's see what happens in verse 27. In verse 27, the spies have returned. They've gone out to look at the land. The brand ambassadors have come. Moses is excited. He said, boys, you better listen to what these guys are about to say. They open their mouth. It says in verse 27, then they told him and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. Oh, wait a minute. That's, that's good news. And this is its fruit. So they're bringing samples, right? Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Now, Anak was this massive giant, right? The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of Jordan. Now, check out what it says in verse 30. Then Caleb, Caleb was one of the boys that went on the expedition. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger. I want you to mark those words. They are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. I want you to see how the story changes. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There, were, there we saw the giants, and we were like grasshoppers. I want you to notice the word. We were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Now, this is a loaded scripture, a lot to unfold. God, I'm going to spend all of my message timeline on this one, but I want to point out a few things. The purpose of Moses sending these guys was literally to bring good news. Literally, it was God has given us the land. Just bring some samples, just as a hidden motivation to encourage people to, to keep moving forward, to keep going ahead, to keep entering into this land. And so that is the purpose of this, of this whole expedition. They come back, completely different language, completely different tone. Now, understand if people have an opinion, and there's a little bit of a delay, but what would you call a delay? 15 minutes? Two days? <clears throat> Six months? Well, there's a lot of people, so maybe they all need to discuss and vote about it. A, a year, maybe? 40 years. 40 years. 10 men disallowed a few million people from entering into the land that God had already given them by their unbelief. See, this is the poster child story to know that unbelief negates God's promises. 
And I need you to understand that God has a promise for His people. God has a promise for His church. God has a promise for the churches of God that are all around the world. But unbelief, and it's not the unbelief of many, it can be the unbelief of few that can influence and negate the promise. You've got to understand something else that you can notice from the Scripture. Unbelief caused them to see themselves the wrong way. I want you to notice what they said. They said, we felt like grasshoppers. It was not, no one called them a grasshopper. No one said to them that they were inferior. We felt in our own. We saw in our own eyes that we were grasshoppers and we were in theirs. I remember a conversation I had a few years ago with someone who was uh, employed with, with another. I knew this person, I knew their boss, and they started saying things like, oh, you got to pray for me. I feel like I'm being frowned on. I'm being looked down upon. All the sort of complaints and and something in me just didn't sit. Usually I would just pray for the person and, you know, Father, I rebuke the whatever. Uh, I just didn't feel that. And a few times I've had this conversation with different people. And I began to ask questions. And I began to ask the question, hey, when you go to those meetings where you are looked down or you feel like you've been looked down on, how do you look at yourself? Oh, well, you know, I'm not the most qualified. I'm not one of them. I'm not the most educated. Well, you got to understand, my friend, if you're looking at yourself that way, you've already carried that unbelief into the atmosphere and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. See, Israel prophesied their value. They prophesied their worth and God received it. We're like grasshoppers. Well, live like a grasshopper. Live in the wilderness live in a dry land. This is what's really got to understand. How do we see ourselves? How do you see yourself? See, unbelief, a lot of times unbelief we think has to do with what is around us. Unbelief we think has a lot to do with God, but actually it's a lot to do with how we see ourselves. And, and, and here's the third idea that I want to pull from this text, and that is that unbelief did not stop 10 people. It's one thing for 10 of the guys to say, we're not going forward, but it stopped a generation Unbelief can rob others from God's promises. It's a big deal. Here's my second thought on unbelief. Unbelief can kill an atmosphere. Unbelief can kill an atmosphere. You know, God is a God of atmospheres. Before God's about to do anything, He sets up an atmosphere. In fact, the Bible says in the, in the beginning when God was creating the heavens and the earth, he didn't like the lighting system. So the Bible says, God said, let there be light. It's not because God had an eye issue. It's not because God, uh, you know, failed the eye exam. No, he could see through darkness. He can penetrate into every dry area. But he sets an atmosphere. And everything that he built upon, he would set an atmosphere and then he would build. He established night and day and then he built. He put upon rivers, he separated the land and the waters and then he created. There's this constant atmosphere setting. Based on that premise, God's biggest mission trip was about to happen. The biggest mission trip was God sending his son Jesus here to planet earth, right? So Matthew 1, John 1, Luke 1, we read all about it. And so God is setting the scene for Jesus to be born. But the crazy part is Jesus just was born in a manger, but that didn't stop God from setting an atmosphere. God sends his angels, and the angels go to the shepherds, the angel go, angels go to the kings, the angel goes to the priests. What is God doing? He's setting an atmosphere. This is why atmosphere is so important in church. 
Sometimes people don't like an atmosphere. It's like, why do we do that? Because atmosphere creates the breeding ground for God's promises to break forth. Atmosphere creates the breeding ground for the birthing of God's goodness and God's mercy. That's what we worship. It's setting an atmosphere. It's setting our heart. And so God is having an atmosphere conversation. All right? I want to give you the context. The context is one of the guys that's going to carry the atmosphere when Jesus arrives in the scene is this guy called John the Baptist. John the Baptist. All right? John the Baptist is not yet born, but John the Baptist is about to be born. And, and, and John the Baptist is going to be born in the house of Zechariah. Uh, and, and Zechariah was a priest. And so while God is preparing for this mission, there was this culture in Israel, in Jewish worship, where once a year the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. It was the place of worship. There's a reason why I'm going where I'm going. Don't you worry. Stay with me. Uh, they go into the holies of holies. They, they pick one person. That year, the, the allocation of the lot fell on this priest called Zechariah. The thing was, Zechariah was a great priest, but just like his forefather, Abraham, he had no kids, right? So God is setting him up. His son was going to be John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who eventually, 30 years later, makes the way for Jesus Christ. Atmospheres. It's all about atmospheres. God's setting the atmosphere. Isn't that, isn't, isn't that God amazing? That he's setting the atmosphere constantly, sometimes decades before it's time. And so in Luke chapter 1, what happens is Zechariah thinks it's just another day in the temple. He goes into the holies of holies. He's very pious. He's very religious. He's got it all ready. His, his robes are ironed. There's not a single crease. I mean, he's ready to go before the presence of God and intercede and repent on behalf of the whole, all of Israel. And all of a sudden, something unexpected happen, happens. An angel comes. Now, these things can happen back in the holy of holy days, and he was set up for it. So he's like, man, an angel comes. So Luke chapter 1, that's the, that's the context we are parachuting into. Luke chapter 1, verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. I want you to look up here for a moment. What did the angel of the Lord say? The angel of the Lord said, your prayer has been answered. So I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. Zechariah has been praying. The angel appears saying, your prayer has been answered. But check out what verse 18 says. We're going to jump a few scriptures. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now, check out what it says, and now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at its appointed time. What a contradiction. Zechariah has been fasting and praying and believing. And when the promise appears right before him, he says, I can't believe it. You know, so many times as Christians, it's the same way we are. We would rather keep fasting and praying till the end of our days, mostly because of our unbelief, 
then be able to receive what God has put before us because of the nature he's called for us to walk in, which is to be believers. And I want you to notice a few observations. First observation is, where did this happen? Where was Zechariah? He was in the holy of the holies, which means unbelief and holiness and can coexist. Which means fasting and prayer and unbelief can still go hand in hand. I'm trying to, I'm, I know I'm messing with some of us. Which means it's not about, because sometimes we think unbelief is just an idea or an issue somebody else faces, but so many times the most pious people can, can be unbelieving, unbelievingly pious, unbelievingly holy, unbelievable, unbelievingly righteous. And, 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 and God was dealing with something, right? The second observation I have is Zach, Zach, Zach comes out and they think that he has a vision. In fact, I didn't read this part, but if you read the rest of it, he comes out and everybody says, give the guy a chair. I think he's seen God. I mean, everybody creates a parade around him because they think he's the holiest man ever. Footnote, all right? Here's the note. Sometimes when you've got nothing believe-worthy saying, it's better to be quiet. Sometimes when you hear the vision of the Lord, the best thing you can do is actually don't say anything about it. I've gotten myself in trouble so many times because so many times people have come to me and said, Pastor, what do you think? And I've had to, I've had to uh, because I'm Pastor Alwyn, I've got to say something. Well, I've learned enough now in life to just keep my mouth shut when I need to keep my mouth shut. Because sometimes you can, you can start from a place of believing, but the more you talk, you can speak yourself into unbelief. And, and, and what the angel of the Lord, and it seems pretty mean what the angel of the Lord did, but he was doing Zacchaeus, uh, he was doing Zachariah, sorry, a, a favor. I begin to ask the question, why would an angel with a message seal the mouth of a man? It's because my unbelief can cancel the message. My unbelief can cancel the message. And this is a controversial uh, conflicting message in the 21st century because we live in an opinion-filled age. In fact, the more the comments, the more the likes, the more the trending. We live, we've built a society upon the more the opinions, the more revolutionary the idea is, the more the contradiction around it. In fact, people, people, I've heard recently that people uh, of the same organization will create false accounts and argue on certain topics to create more hot news out of it. They're on the same team, but, but one's believing, one's unbelieving, and they call it tension, and they call it marketing, but, and we are living in such an age where our opinion matters. Now, here was the thing. As I was, as I was typing this message, right, I was going to type these words, and the words were, your opinion does not matter. Now, we say it all the time. I've heard Christians say it all the time. Your opinion does not matter. But as I was typing it, I had a moment. And the moment I had was, actually, that's not right. Actually, your opinion does matter. That's why God shut the mouth of Zechariah. See, if, if Zechariah's opinion did not matter, Zechariah just had an opinion. But if his opinion did not matter, God would not have shut his mouth. But because his opinion mattered, God had to shut his mouth. 
Think about this. So I'm changing the language. I'm changing the statement. I'm changing what we sometimes say culturally. Actually, our opinions matter. But our opinion must, must come into alignment and our opinion must come into agreement with God's word. See, God wants your opinion, but your opinion must be soaked in the Word of God. Your opinion must be sandwiched in the Scripture. Your opinion must come from this and this alone. Like, yes, I might feel a certain way about a certain thing. Why? Because I'm a human being. Why? Because I've, I've, I've created with my own uniqueness, but I've got to surrender and submit that to this book, to this scripture, and allow it to be the parameters in which my opinions flow. See, when that happens, there's something powerful that comes forth. So you are, my opinion matters to God. It does. But it does not mean my opinion is above the Word of God. It does not mean my opinion has a higher say. No, I must surrender it and, and allow my opinion to come in alignment with God's Word, with God's promises. See, the children of Israel never entered the promised land because they had an opinion. Zechariah was quietened because he had an opinion. I know it seems controversial because God is looking for alignment. Alignment is such a massive value in the kingdom of God. God is looking for partnership. He's not looking for robots. He's not looking for just people with an attitude. He's looking for people that catch his spirit. And so I begin to ask God's promises. What's God's promises for this church? What's God's promises for this house? God's promise for this house is this house will be filled. God's promise for this house is this house will be built. God's promise for this house is leaders would be released and churches would be planted and nations would be impacted and cities transformed and salvations and miracles. My head, when it thinks about it, doesn't know how it's going to happen, but my heart says, I will follow. I will follow. I will follow you. I will follow you, Lord. My opinion about what your promise for this house, for this church, for your people is I will follow. And I have an opinion. And my opinion is, God, I believe you. And God, I trust you. God, I'm with you. God, I'm for you. Point number three on unbelief. Unbelief. Unbelief is contagious. Unbelief is contagious. This again is so controversial to the generation we live in where it's my opinion, it's what I think, and, and, and yes, in, in theory, on a, on, a, on a level one basis, I, I understand that, but the more I read into scriptures and the more I look into the Word of God, actually my opinion, I, I, my unbelief is contagious. You know, because sometimes I, I hear people say, well, it's just my opinion. It's just my approach. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. There's actually nothing wrong with that. But I've heard people say, oh, you're just an optimist, but I'm a realist. I'm a realist. I'm just being realistic about it. Uh, no one gets hurt by what I think. No one gets hurt. No one's getting hurt by what I think. Let me show you scripture. Acts chapter 14, verse 1. The context is Paul is on an evangelistic campaign. He's preaching the word of God, and something happens, and something else happens. Check out Acts chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogues of the Jews and so spoke. In other words, they preached, right? That a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed. I want you to notice those words. Paul was preaching. Greeks and Jews, Gentiles and Jews, believed. But check out what verse 2 says. But the unbelieving Jews... 
stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. What a verse one, they believed. But when the believing believers came in contact with the unbelieving believers, the unbelievers, unbelieving people of the way, their minds were poisoned. Now I remember when I first got saved and I got passionate about God. And, and people ask me, where did you get this love for the church? You know, no one taught me to love the church. No one taught me to serve the church. I never went to a, a, a discovery course. I never did a dispersonality assessment, never did a gifting test. I just instantly fell in love with the church. And I remember three months into the journey, I had a few more I had few people. You know how when you enter a church, you've got people you look up to, and that's a good guy. That's, she's amazing. There. Well, when I grow up, I want to be like them. Well, while, while I was walking around, I, I was doing all these things in church. And I remember a bunch of them were sitting in the corner. They were always in church, but they never did anything, right? They were always in church, but they never did anything. And they called me, and they're like, Alwyn, what are you doing? Like, we just see you you're here, you're there, you're in this service, you're in that service. I'm like 14, 15 years old. And, and they start talking me, saying, you know, you don't have to do that. You know, you don't need to do that. You know, and, and all this unbelief and negativity and Oh, you know, beginner, beginner, you know, literally show me a verse in a scripture about what you do. And I was just like new in faith and I got confused and am I, am I, to the point of like, I was like, am I out of God's will? You know, let me tell you, this is what happened in the scripture. Unbelieving Jews poisoned the new believer. Downport Church, let's be careful. That when there are people among us that are getting on fire for God, I've seen this so many times in church life that the people that take the fire out of God's people are God's people, God's children. It's not the world out there. A lot of times it's our lives and, you know, it's the compromise that we carry can be contagious uh, and take away and rob from what God has for his church and what God has for his children. So unbelief is contagious. But you know what's the opposite? Belief and conviction is contagious too. Belief is contagious too. And I know I'm talking to a bunch of believers. I know I'm talking to a bunch of people that carry the Word of God, that carry the promises of God. You know, I've been in churches in the past where when I'm preaching, people are talking. It's like I'm arguing about the message. I've been in, I know, it's, it's, I know you're shocked saying, not a downpour, nobody a downpour does that sort of stuff. I'm talking about other places I've been in the past where I'm preaching, there's discussions happening, this happening, that. I'm just like, wow, wow, you know, and God needs an atmosphere. Let me tell you, there's something beautiful about an atmosphere when God's will, when God's purposes, when worship is released to touch the heart of God and create transformation around us. Point number four, which is probably going to be the most significant one, is unbelief has eternal consequences. Unbelief has eternal consequences. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. This is what it says. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You know how you read these portions of Scripture in the book of Romans, you're like, it sounds great, but what, what does it really mean? I'd encourage you to read all of it today. We don't have the time to read all of it. But really what Paul is saying is, and he says this throughout the epistles as he writes, he begins to ask the question, how did Abraham get saved? That's the question he's asking. 
How did Abraham uh, enter the promises of God? Now, we can all relate to that because I want to ask you the question, how did you get saved? Uh, you know, what caused you to get saved? And, and, and he says something which is almost subliminal, but you've got to read it. It says in verse 4, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In other words, what he was saying was, is Abra if Abraham did all these good things, and then he got saved, it would have been considered a debt unto God. In other words, God owed him something, and God was repaying that debt by saving him. Are you tracking with me? In the same logic, in the same principle, that's the question I want to ask you. How did you get saved? Did you do something? Did you give up something? Did you lay down something? Because this is the important part. This is the centrality and the foundation on which your faith stands on. Did you give up something to get saved? Did God tell you to do this and then you will be saved? And that is what Paul is challenging. What Paul is challenging is he's saying Abraham believed. So my question is, a guy is doing drugs, and because he stopped doing drugs, did he get saved? See, that's how, we would not say yes to that, but that's how a lot of times we think. Abraham didn't, didn't stop anything he was doing. In the midst of what he was doing, he put his trust in God. And you've got to understand this, because if you read the rest of Romans 4, this is what Paul is saying. When Jesus died for our sins, something amazing happened. A lot of people don't realize this. We don't get this. When Jesus shed his blood, the blood of Jesus erased our sin, took away our sin completely. And not just our sin, listen to what I'm about to say, but the sins of the world. The sins of the world was, say, was, was paid for. And that's why in Romans 4 it says, God was in Jesus reconcil reconciling the world to himself. Now, now the word reconciling is an accounting word. And what he's saying is, God in, in Jesus, God in himself was reconciling the world. He was saying, I'm taking the shame. I'm wiping clean. I'm taking away uh, all of these things. And you've got to understand, God took away the sins of the whole world. Then you might ask the question, if God took away the sins of the whole world, why should anybody go to hell? If, if Romans 4 says, God took the sins of the world, why should anybody go to hell. We should all be going to heaven. Now, that's correct. But the reason why some people go to hell is because God has given us a will and a choice. Now, this is where we mix it up, right? You agree. We'll agree on this. Yeah, they've given them a will and a choice. And then if you live a sinful lifestyle, no. Now, I'm going to say what I'm about to say. People don't go to hell because of sin. Digest it. People go to hell because of their unbelief. People don't go to hell. This is the biggest difference between the faith that we have in Jesus and any other faith, any other religion. People don't go to hell based on Scripture because of their sin. People go to hell because of their unbelief. Now, you can, this does not give us permission now to believe and to continue sinning because a life of belief will produce a life of righteousness. But a life of unbelief will result in a life of sin. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Are you with me? But what happens is somewhere along the way, we reverse it and we think, it's my good works that's going to take me to heaven. No, it's my belief in Jesus. But the product of believing in Jesus will produce good works through us. 
It's my sin-free life that's going to take me to heaven. No, I'm sorry. I apologize. I burst a balloon today. It's, it's your belief in Jesus. But the product of believing in Jesus is a life filled with righteousness, is a life that demonstrates holiness. Holiness is a product. Holiness is a fruit that's produced out of that belief. So many times what happens is we start chasing the fruit and we keep tally of the fruit and we have a notebook that keeps tally of the fruit and that becomes the obsession and, and, and that's the crazy part. We get saved by grace, but at some point we fall into works, but we're saved by our belief. That's why it says in the Bible, if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart, you shall be saved. Now the result of a life that's founded in Christ, is a life, yes, of righteousness, is a life of holiness, is a life where things are being set free and things are being removed. But so many times in church culture, what happens is we begin to look for fruit before the person is even actually properly believed. There are so many people that come to church, even our church, that, are, that actually don't believe. I want, you, I want us to grapple with this idea. See, we think if everyone comes through these doors, they're saved. They're not. They have an idea that something's happening. They have an idea of, and, and, and unfortunately, we need to be careful that we don't create a culture of behavior examination. Let's create a culture of belief and conviction because right believing leads to right behavior. And so we got to understand this, that belief is such a big deal in 2007, Billy Graham was interviewed by the Seattle Times. And as they were interviewing him, they asked him, is there any sin that God cannot forgive? And Billy Graham took a moment and paused, and he said, the only sin God cannot forgive is unbelief. The only sin that God cannot forgive is unbelief. And so, so many times, our life, it's a demonstration of not our ethos or our preferences or our addictions or our habits or our behaviors. Yes, that might be the fruit of it, but the root of it is, who do you really believe? Do you really believe God's Word? Do you really believe His promises? Do you really believe He's for you? Do you really believe he will make it come to pass? Do you, does your life demonstrate those beliefs? Does your actions demonstrate those beliefs? When you hear the word of the Lord, what's your initial response? It is an argument? Is it distraction? Is it an opinion? Or is it, be it unto me according to your word? Let me tell you, this is a bigger statement if we believe as opposed to the way we behave. And I know the sort of rattles some of our thinkings and some of our mindsets. Uh, I, I, I'm just trying to deal with the, the ethos of how we approach the throne because we got to understand it's going to make or break how we look at everything in life. But how we believe is so significant. Abraham, a guy who was born in carnality, his dad was an idol maker. And the Bible says Abraham believed just believed. And let me tell you, Abraham didn't just believe. His belief caused him to move. His belief caused him to step out. His belief caused him to walk in obedience. His belief eventually caused him to walk in holiness. His belief caused him... So there are things and changes and attributes that come along the way based on a life of belief. Now, Dampu Church, I want to ask you, 
a very important question. Are you an unbelieving believer or are you a believing believer? I pray as we enter 2022 in the next couple of days, really, it's, 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 it's a month or so away, uh, you know, that we would walk in with incredible conviction, incredible belief in the promises of God. Dumpo Church, the church I see and the church that Jesus sees is not a timid, shy church. It's not a church that is sitting in the corners grappling around grief, offense, and unbelief, and gossip, and malice, and bitterness. No, it's a church that's, that's, that's anointed by the Spirit of God. It's a church that says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He has anointed me to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, to declare the good news of the Lord, to bring healing and deliverance to the north, the south, the east, the west, to the ends of the earth. That's the church that Jesus sees. But one of the things that stops it is unbelief. And here's the thing about God, right? God is so patient. I don't have time to share this with you, but it actually there's a scary scripture in Deuteronomy where it says, and God waited for that unbelieving generation to die. So there would rise up another generation that would believe and possess the land. Let's not be that generation that God waits on to move on. Let's be that generation that God waits on so that He can anoint, He can touch, He can give the spirit of boldness to possess the land before us. I mean, this is a multifaceted message. And I think there is an unbeliever in all of us. I think there are vari variances of how we believe in the promises of God. Maybe you thought you knew Jesus and you're like, I don't even know if I know God. I don't even know if my full belief is in Him. Maybe, maybe there, are, there are layers of it. Maybe you believe in this, but you don't believe in that. Maybe there's a holistic 360 message that I'm sharing. But wherever you are, I want to pray with you. I want to pray for you that, that there will be this belief that would rise up within us that would say, God, I believe your promises. God, I believe your word. God, I stand upon your promises. Yes, my mind is saying this, and yes, I have an opinion here and an opinion there, but I want to surrender that opinion to the word of God. Lord, your word is supreme. Your word has primary authority. Your word has its say over my preferences and my opinions and my mindsets and my convictions. Lord, today I surrender. Why don't we pray right now? If that is you right here, right now, I just want you to just let, gently lift your hands up. This is an act of surrender, saying, God, I surrender right now. God, I lay down. I put my trust in you. I put my hope in you one more time. Father, this morning I pray for your church. I thank you, God, that you've called us to be a body of believers, a body that is strong, a body that will rise up, a body that will go from strength to strength. Lord, let us not be like the ten spies that brought forth the fact, but let's be like the other two that spoke the truth. And I declare, Lord, that there will be a truth that you would deposit within our hearts, that there will be a strength that would rise up within our soul, that we would once again set our eyes about, set our gaze to the promises. Like, like the psalmist said, I lift up my eyes to the hills, and my help comes from the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. We once again put our trust in you this morning, and we believe that all your promises are yes and amen. In Jesus' name, we pray, and everybody shout, amen.